Okay, well, how many of you kiddos in the audience are going to dress up as something resembling a Star Wars figure? Anybody? Okay, how about a Disney character? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you are going to dress up as a Reformation hero? A couple of you? Yeah, okay. I am dressing up as a tree. See, I already got my costume on. As everyone in the uh, United States will most likely be sitting in the world of ghouls and goblins and zombies and superheroes and comic book characters on Tuesday, uh, I have a suspicion that few will have at the forefront of their mind as they're eating candy an event that occurred 500 years ago. And this morning we are starting into Ephesians uh, very, very uh, generally. And next week we're going to start our intro in depth. But today I wanted to take a second because I wanted to remember something that occurred 500 years ago in a small village known as Wittenberg, Germany. On October 31st, 1517, the day that is popularly assumed uh, the day that he did this, a, a monk named Martin Luther, who was also a well-respected professor at the local university, solidified a movement that had been bubbling within the Roman Catholic Church for decades. And it is fitting that today we are beginning the book of Ephesians. And the reason is, is because Ephesians was loved by the Reformers. Now, some of you may have no idea what I'm talking about when I talk about the Reformers, but I'm going to give you an idea. Uh, Martin Luther, John Calvin especially, loved the book of Ephesians because Ephesians gets back to the core of the gospel. It gets back to the core of what the church is to be. It gets back to the core of what our identity is in Jesus Christ. And in all the noise that surrounds us in the world, and quite honestly, the noise that surrounds the church oftentimes, it's important for us to go back to those basics. And so next week, we're going to dive deep into the intro and start through this book. And we are going to go through this very short book for a total of one year. And the reason is, is because I want us to get the basics. But today, I want us to look at some of the main points of this letter and how getting back to Scripture for these reformers and uh, the men that we're going to look at brought about a massive change in the church that echoes still today. How many of you recognize this picture? It's my Uncle Fred. Now, anybody know who that is? Go ahead, say it out loud. Martin Luther, all the good Lutherans uh, in the, the audience know who that is. That's Martin Luther. Anybody who know who this is? John Calvin, very good. Yeah, John Calvin. He was a hipster before hipsters were in. Look at that beard. He would have made it in Portland, man. Anybody know this guy? Holrich Zwingli. Everybody say Zwingli. I love this guy. This guy had a ton of uh, amazing thoughts. Uh, he's one of the guys that uh, wrote the least out of the Reformers, but he had a huge impact. And so when we talk about Reformers, there are tons of men and women who gave their lives to get back to the core of the gospel. But these are the three that are usually brought up, quite honestly, as the highest of the heroes. And so prior to Martin Luther, a number of small groups had attempted to reform the Catholic Church. Some of you may be familiar with people, have you ever heard of Wycliffe Bible translators? Anybody? Okay. John Wycliffe. Uh, another one, Jan Hus. Uh, they were both burned at the stake for trying to get back to the gospel. But Luther did something that seemed to take this attempt of reformation farther than it had gone before. On that October 31st, he had uh, most likely the janitor of the university um, nail to the church door uh, a, a big piece of paper. And that piece of paper was technically called the Disputation on the Power of Indulgences. Everybody say disputation. disputation. 
Now, I had to look up what disputation meant. Uh, it's it's most, mostly known today as what's called Luther's 95 theses, like a thesis statement, because what he was saying was he was trying to start a conversation with the church. Movies have made this, this big dramatic moment where he takes the, the piece of paper and the hammer and he goes up to the door and he pounds it on. And he says, down with the Catholic Church. That's not what he was doing. What he was doing in that day in the 16th century was basically like posting something on Facebook. Uh, In reality, this was a bulletin board to start a conversation with his peers and other priests and with the church about something that was going on in the church called indulgences. And so for Uh, for that reason, that it was posted on the bulletin board and it got printed in the printing press that had been around for about 60 years, it spread like wildfire throughout Europe. And all of a sudden, Martin Luther, unwillingly, quite honestly, became the father of the Reformation. Now, in this piece of paper, Luther desired to simply make known to the Pope. Okay, if you don't know Catholicism, the Pope is kind of the highest of the high authorities in the church. And he was trying to Uh, make known to him the fact that priests down at the lower levels were teaching false doctrine and were forcing upon the people certain activities to get them to buy their way into salvation. One of these things was called indulgences. This was basically, uh, and these are still around just so you know, this is still part of the Catholic Church. You can go and pay money to the papacy, the Catholic Church, And what they will do, what that will do is that will buy you some time out of what's called purgatory, okay? Now, many of you have no idea what purgatory is, no idea what indulgences is, but we'll get to it here in just a second, all right? So to do this, to kind of talk about this and tie it into Ephesians, I want to look at a few of the Reformation's main points that actually we find right here in Scripture. And so the first one you can write down if you're taking down notes is this. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If you walk out of here with nothing else today, memorize this, because this is the core of the Reformation. 500 years ago, men and women died to bring this truth to us, and we need to celebrate it massively today. You see, the Catholic doctrine at that point, especially of purgatory, was basically that There is this treasure trove of grace that sits in heaven in Jesus Christ. And he can hand out grace through the papacy, through the Pope and his priests. And the way that they hand it out is through what's called sacraments. Being baptized, being confirmed in the Catholic Church, uh, getting married is another one. Uh, So single people, you're you're in purgatory for a while, sorry, right? Literally, that's that's part of what the, the, unless you become a priest or a nun. Um, So that's part of how they get you a bit. Um, But the basics of purgatory were that whatever sin you didn't work off in this life through sacraments, you had to work off and be purged. That's where purgatory comes from. You had to be purged of that sin, spending time in this temporary hell. Okay, that's literally the statement of purgatory. Purgatory is not found anywhere in Scripture. And yet, the church enforced it. And so what started to happen was these men were hired by the church to come into villages and they'd put on these giant plays of people burning in hellfire and they'd say, do you want to be this person? And people would be scared because most people of that day were illiterate. They couldn't read the Bible for themselves. And so they'd go, of course, no, I don't want to go to hell. And so they'd say, well, all you have to do is you have to pay some money to the Pope. And so they would start to pay money to them and they'd give them Uh, assurance that they could get out of purgatory early 
And that was what was called indulgences. Now, what most everyday Christians didn't know at the time was that the reason, the primary reason they were doing this was not because Scripture drove it or pushed it, but it was because they had massive wars on every front, and the Pope was the leader of the army of the Roman Empire. And he needed money in order to keep those wars going, and at the same time, around the time of Martin Luther, St. Peter's Basilica was being built in Rome. Anybody ever been to the Vatican? Anybody? Okay. You've seen the ornate work. That was all being paid for out of peasants' pockets who had no money to do so in order to get themselves out of purgatory. When Martin Luther and the other reformers saw this, and they saw that the poor and the oppressed were being largely ignored, and, and the illiterate public was buying into this corrupt system, hook, line, and sinker. They saw the huge buildings and the the priests that were basically taking it in pocket, really no different than the mega churches and the celebrity pastors of today that make six figures, right? They saw this and they said, the oppressed are being harmed by these people. This is not the heart of Christ. And so surely, Martin Luther thought, the Pope would be against this. So he wrote these 95 theses and said, Pope, what are you doing about this? You need to change this. Surely the Pope would see that Scripture commands us to care for the poor and the oppressed over and against building their own kingdom. Well, in his own life, Luther was seeing that the false religious machinery was already at work. But internally, he was also broken, wondering if he was even loved by God. Have any of you ever felt that way? Raise your hand if you've ever felt, does God actually even love me? I'm such a sinner. He would go to confession and sit down and he would confess all of his sins and tradition tells us that he would leave the confessional and he would get halfway back to his room and he'd have to stop and turn around because of the thoughts he'd had in his head and go back and reconfess them. Uh, the other monks would find, himself beating, find him beating himself in his room with whips trying to purge himself of his sin. The guilt and the shame of sin hung over him like a thick cloud but as he started to study scripture, he was sent away to seminary, right? He was sent away to seminary and he got all these bright ideas, like those of us who go to seminary, right? He got all these bright ideas and he was like, wait a minute, scripture says something different than what the church has been teaching me this whole time. And so he started to look into scripture deeply and he realized that what scripture said was that the core of the gospel wasn't that he had to work off his salvation, but that salvation was already readily available because of God's grace. And so he went back to Ephesians and Galatians and Romans and the entire Bible, and he found that the truth throughout was this. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. He found this truth. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Luther realized that grace was given by Christ, not by the church or the pope or a pastor or a priest, and it was available to anyone that desired it. It did not have to be given by a priest. It did not even have to be handed down in a special prayer. Grace was given by God alone for the forgiveness of sins. And all that was required was a response of faith to that truth. No formal religious activity was required. Faith that both mentally acknowledged the truth and then aligned itself with that truth, that God is the one that gives grace. And from that, 
What the reformers taught was that your heart would start to be regenerated so that in living in that grace, you would start to do the works that were prepared before, beforehand. And this is the core of the gospel that we believe. We do not save ourselves by our own works. There is no amount of work that we can do to bring God's grace to us. God's grace is already there. And when we get that, when we get that we've been forgiven, even though we're sinners, when we, for, when we remember that God's love is contra-conditional. Let me, let me clear something up for you guys. How many of you have ever heard that God's love is unconditional? Raise your hand. That is false. That is not true, and here's why. Unconditional means there are no conditions. So in essence, what unconditional love says is that you can keep on sinning as if you never knew Christ, and Christ will still love you. Is that the gospel? No, it's not. God's love is what's called contra-conditional. Now, all of you who are 80s and 90s children, you're thinking contra. I remember that video game, right? Okay. Contra just means against. His love is contra-conditional. In other words, it went against the fact that we were sinning against him, and he loved us anyway. And that contra-conditional love asked us to believe in him and believe in his grace and be thankful for the forgiveness he's given us. And that would start to renew us by the Spirit and regenerate us to follow Him. This is the core of the gospel. And any love, any agape that we have as a church is from and based out of this original love. We have no love of our own, but it comes from Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. Secondly, out of this same fervor, Martin Luther and the other reformers gave us this truth that we hold very dear. Write this down. Scripture is the authority over the church, not the other way around. Scripture is the authority over the church, not the other way around. I will forever be thankful to the tradition that I came from that taught us to study the Word of God book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Only in looking to Scripture in the fullness of the historical and grammatical context can we understand the heart and will of Jesus for our lives. That's why I'm up here every Sunday trying to teach you from the Word of God. And in studying Paul's letter to the Ephesians for the next year, we're really going to attempt to get back to the core of who we are called to be as a church. We're going to look to Scripture, because Scripture will correct some of the things that we have been for the last six years. Scripture will change who we are to be in identity. And Luther and the Reformers knew that to understand the will and heart of God, we have to look to Scripture not the opinions of man. And contrary to the Catholic system in which priests and bishops and cardinals and the Pope are the dispensers of grace, the Reformers knew that churches were given ordered leadership and they were to come together as congregations full of individual talents and gifts to build up the church. It wasn't one man or two men. It was a congregation, a body working together to build one another up. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. And he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. 
You see, it's not about Hans doing ministry or the elders doing ministry or the deacons doing ministry or you and your parachurch group doing ministry. It's about all of us in the body of Christ living together using our individual giftings to build one another up in the grace that has been given to us by Jesus Christ. And what for? What purpose? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. In the 1900s, the church became so focused on what they saw in the world proving successful in the businesses that they said, let's bring these marketing schemes into the church, and they started to play off of emotion and consumeristic mentality. They started to give certain things to the church, certain programs and certain things that would entice people in, but how you catch people is how you keep them. And the reality is, is the gospel is what must catch and keep people. The gospel in the midst of the church by the Spirit of God. You see, the church does not get to interpret Scripture based off of the opinions of one person or two people, but the church is to be submitted to the Word collectively as we study Scripture together under the unity of the Holy Spirit. And leadership is given to guide all of us in that authority of Scripture, not the other way around. If we are out of line with Scripture, we must change individually and collectively. If we do that, we will not be moved by these waves of doctrine. And this is why Jesus gave us the great commandment, or excuse me, the great commission to go out and make disciples, teaching them, the disciples, to observe all that he has commanded us. And so as opposed to the Catholic Church, the Reformers desired a church in which all the parts of the body of Christ acted as members that belonged to one another, teaching one another. The church was to be a body with each member using their gifts to care for the rest of the body, with the motivation behind all of it to help each other grow in the maturity of Christ. And this congregational view of the church was a far cry from the Moses mentality, the papacy, where one person has the only ministry. And so the reality of what they gave us was massive because it started to put together a mentality where every person was responsible, not just for their own walk with Christ, but for their brothers and sisters' walk with Christ. We see this in Ephesians 4.25. Here's what it says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth, the word of God, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We start to learn from Scripture that we are accountable not just for how where we will stand on Judgment Day, but how our brothers and sisters that we belong to and that belong to us, where they stand. We get this from Romans 12:5. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. I love how the NIV translates this. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body and each member belongs to all the others. Who do you belong to? Who do I belong to? Do we belong to one another? Or do I belong to myself and no one else? What the papacy gave was a, a concern for one person, an individual, to gain their salvation. What the reformers did was they brought forward a view of the body of Christ where every brother and sister helped one another. And with Scripture at our core, 
We have no option as Christians to be apathetic in our walk. No option to not participate in the body of Christ. No option to not speak truth with one another based upon the commands of Scripture. And the leadership of this church knows that we will be held accountable for the condition of this church. And so we desire to see these same principles that came out in the Reformation operate within this church. And this leads me to the last point that we're going to celebrate today. The church is for the purpose of bringing glory to God, not to any one person. The church is for the purpose of bringing glory to God, not to any one person. One of the main reasons Martin Luther stood up to the tyranny of the papacy was because the Pope at the time wanted to make his mark on history. He wanted it to be about him and his ministry and his conquests. Martin Luther knew that that was not the heart of Scripture. And in an age of megachurches and celebrity pastors and consumeristic church involvement, we, Christians of today, need desperately to understand this last point. The Reformers are often lifted up as men that were willing to bring division so that they could stay firmly on the truth of Scripture, but that is a misunderstanding of the Reformation. In reality, for the majority of the Reformers, splitting the church was the last thing they wanted to do. Martin Luther himself said, I would die to protect the papacy. Their desire was not to split the church and divide the church, but to get back to Scripture and draw the whole church fully reformed to that same place. At a meeting between Luther, Zwingli, and other reformers, known as the Marburg, uh, I can never say this word right, colloquy, Marburg colloquy, these men gathered to see if they could unify their growing movement into one church. They debated 15 points of faith, and on 14, they united. But on the 15th, they disagreed, and people have held this up often as Martin Luther standing firm on Scripture. But if you do your research into the history What he was actually doing was he was actually standing firm in a place to bring the Reformed Church and the Church of the the Catholic Church together as one. This topic that they debated and that they didn't unite on was the topic of communion. Now, the Catholic Church believes that the bread and the cup, or the wine, become the literal body and blood of Christ. That when the priest consecrates them, You are eating the literal body and blood of Christ. It's called transubstantiation, okay? Now, what Luther fought for was what's called consubstantiation. He said it's not actually that, but it's still very holy, and and Christ is around it and in it and in the midst of it, okay? And what Zwingli came along, and he said, no, they're just elements. They're just symbols for us to remember what Christ did. The, the, The spirituality and the holiness is in the fact that the church takes it together, and the spirit is there in the communion, And Zwingli was so far apart from where the Catholic Church was that Martin Luther stood in the middle and he said, no, we can't go that far because if we do, we will bring division. And so he stayed where he was at, trying to bring the Catholic Church under Reformation. The Reformation was not a celebration of division for the purpose of principles and secondary issues. It was a celebration of reforming the church to be unified under Scripture in faith towards Jesus Christ. And true unity by the Holy Spirit will be something that we see as core to Paul's view of the church in Ephesians. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4.1. 
I, therefore, Paul says, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Does that mean it's going to be easy? No, when you bear with somebody, does that mean it's like super hunky-dory fun? No, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The calling we have causes us to be regenerate to the point where we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And this was at the heart of what the Reformers were trying to do to get the Catholic Church back to this understanding of Scripture and to be unified on it. Look with me back just a little bit to Ephesians 3, verse 4. Paul is speaking about what the whole gospel is. And he's going to bring in this understanding of unity. In Ephesians 3, 4, he says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery, the gospel, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body. So what was apart, Gentiles and Jews, has now been unified, and they are partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Skip down with me to verse 8. To me, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's what Paul was saying for us today. For you to go to your friend and say, hey, I just prayed a prayer. I got into heaven. Isn't that cool? Isn't God powerful? That's nothing. That is not how God wanted to represent his power to the world. For you to be unified together, people who disagree on many things, and to stand in unity, just like Jews and Gentiles pulled together, chapter 3. It is through this, the church, the ecclesia, the gathering together of the saints, that he is going to make known the manifold wisdom of God. And this is why in 2 Corinthians 5, we are called ministers of reconciliation because his gospel reconciles parties that are divided to bring them together. Many of us have tr- have tr- uh, in this church have friends and family that we have been trying to speak with and convince of the gospel. We've tried everything from apologetics to debating to laying down scripture to show them the glory of God. But what I've learned over 15 years of ministry is that arguing and debating is not what brings people to Christ. What they need to see is something they will see nowhere else. They get arguing and debating on CNN and Fox News and everywhere else. What they need to see is the unity of the Holy Spirit that binds together people who otherwise would not be bound together. When true unity by the Holy Spirit occurs, it is an awesome thing to behold. And this was Paul's desire for the church, and this was the Reformers' desire for the church, that they would no longer be divided because of popular opinion or papal opinion, but that they would be joined together in love. And this is why John 13, 35 says it's our love, one for another, that will speak to the world that we are his disciples. 
I love how the NLT translates this. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. And so as we take time this morning to worship together in song, to take communion together as a church family, I would call your attention to the heart of thanksgiving that we should have for the men and women of the Reformation, many of whom gave their lives to point us back to the truth of Scripture, the simplicity of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the desire to be unified under the authority of the Word of God, and that the church should be unified again under that Word to speak to the world of the power of Jesus Christ and the cross. If you don't know Jesus today, if you have not entered into a relationship with him, it is there for the taking. All you have to do is lay down your own ego, your own pride, and say, I cannot earn it on my own. I must accept the free gift of God's grace. And then start to walk in it among his people in the midst of his word by the Holy Spirit. If you want to do that today, you don't need to do anything special. You don't need to say a simple prayer. You don't need to come back and pray with me in the back. You simply need to commit your life to Christ and walk amongst his people in the midst of his word by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we get to go have a meal today, an agape meal. Agape means love. It is based out of the love that Christ had for us and the love that we have for one another that unites us. And so we're going to pray now, and we're going to have the worship team come back up, and you can let all your little ones run around while we do worship. But we're also going to hand out communion during this time, because communion comes from a word that means we have something in common. Folks, what is it that we have in common? The love of Christ. And that is what is to unify the church. That is what is to speak the manifold wisdom of Christ to the world around us. And so let's pray and prepare our hearts to take communion together, to receive the cup and the bread that symbolize his body and blood. Let's prepare our hearts and confess anything that might be keeping us from the Lord or from one another. Let's spend time in reconciling. If there are people in this church that you need to reconcile with, this is a great time to do that. That's one of the main reasons for communion. Jesus said, uh, if you have something broken between you and another person, leave your offer at the altar. Go and reconcile with them and then come back and take care of business. And so right now, I'd love to have the folks who are doing communion go ahead and stand up and go and grab the uh, communion elements. We're going to start handing those out. And I'm going to pray as we start to enter into this second time of worship where we respond to the love of Christ and the love for one another. Jesus, we thank you that you are faithful to complete the work that you've begun in us. Lord, that what you started on the cross will continue until the day where you come to bring full rule and reign to this earth. And in the meantime, in this church age, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you that we can be united together in you, going out to all the world to proclaim your gospel, that you desire to reconcile all people to yourself and to one another, to bring shalom to this world. And so we take a small snapshot of that now as we go and share a meal together as a group of people that the Bible says are already enrolled in the kingdom of heaven. And so we do that now to honor you and to love one another. We thank you for this day. And we pray, God, that you would help us to tear down safely and quickly to be able to do that. And we just thank you so much for your goodness. 
In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord bless thee, the Lord bless thee and, keep thee. and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. And be gracious unto thee, the Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee.